Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God in light of tradition, but especially we've been focusing on how to approach the Scripture in prayer. That's been our main focus. So we'd love to have you be part of the program. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you can do that by coming here to be part of our live audience like these nice people have done from a variety of places in the country, Florida and California and such. Or you can also call in during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you do call in, the phone number for those in North America is one 800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, the number is country code 1, area code 205 also, you can send us questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Or you can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today we will start to take a look at Jesus' healing of two blind men on his way to Jerusalem and how it is in between two healings of the blind that Jesus begins to heal the spiritual blindness of his apostles. The reason he had to do that is they rejected any idea of Christ suffering and dying. They didn't like that idea. Now, remember, we are going through a book I wrote called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a scandalized church. You can get this at EWTN's religious catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com, and there it is item 81098, 81098. All right, so let's begin. Now, if you remember, in last week we were talking about how the Jesus and the apostles had been in a boat and they were crossing from you know, uh, one side of the Sea of Galilee to another. And so you have a sense that you know, the Sea of Galilee is 12 miles north to south and seven miles at its widest. Okay, so uh, and it looks kind of like a harp. That's why sometimes you hear it called the Sea of Kinneret. Kinneret is harp. And then in Aramaic it becomes uh, uh, Gineret. Um, it changed a little bit. So they go to Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida is a town on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. This is where the Jordan River 
flows into the northern part of the, the lake. And then again, it, at the southern end, it flows back out. And at that northern place where the, the deposits a lot of mud and things like that, it's not so deep. And for that reason, there's a lot of fish up in that part of the lake. It's very, it nourishes the fish. And Bethsaida means house of fishing. That's what Bethsaida means. So there's a lot of fishermen that live there, like Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip. These, these were fishermen living in the town of fishermen. Okay, so that's, that's where he's going. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. It says there that they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So this is one, this is the episode. And we'll see that this is the opening of a large section of the Gospel of Mark. It goes all the way from this passage in chapter 8, verse 22, until chapter 10. There's another blind man in Jericho, and that's Bartimaeus, the blind Bartimaeus. And this is very important to watch when you're reading the Gospel of Mark. The others too somewhat, but St. Mark was really strong on this technique where he would have a passage and then another one that looked, you know, similar. And he would have these two passages and those two passages are like the bread of a sandwich. And you interpret everything in between from the perspective of those two end pieces. So, for instance, we saw that in another text when he is called to go raise the daughter of Jairus. Then there's the woman with the healing, and then it goes back to raising Jairus' daughter. And you see that both the, the girl was 12 years old and the woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years. It's meant to show a parallel between the girl and the older woman. And you help, it helps you to interpret. And there are lots and lots of examples of that technique in St. Mark, especially St. Mark. And here, the opening of the eyes in 8.22 and following, and then again in 10.52, chapter 10, verse 52, you say, what's 
everything in between that is meant to be about opening the eyes. He opens the physical eyes of this man and Bartimaeus, but he will be opening the spiritual eyes of the people in between, especially the apostles. So that's what you want to look for here. And what is it that he's opening their eyes about? Their regular and constant rejection of his prediction that he's going to die and then rise again. You know, they, they don't want to hear about it. He will describe how he's going to suffer, be killed, and then rise on the third day. They don't want to hear about it. They, they probably wouldn't mind rising on the third day, but the dying part, they don't want to hear about it. And they're blind to being able to understand why Christ has to suffer and die. They're blind. And so this is part of the process. And notice with this man here in chapter 8, verse 22 and following, he begins to see gradually. That's going to be the pattern of the apostles. They also have to learn to see gradually. They don't get it right away. Now, those of you who are parents, I think there are a few of you here that have had children, and did your kids ever do what you told them the first time you asked them? No. As my father and mother used to say, why do we have to tell you 10,000 times before you listen? Because I'm not paying attention. That wasn't the right answer. It was true, but it wasn't the answer they wanted to hear. But that's, the apostles needed repeated admonition from Christ and get this teaching over and over again. What you will see in this, this whole segment, is that every time our Lord predicts his coming suffering, death, and then resurrection, the apostles reject it and change the subject every time. And, you know, for instance, Peter will rebuke Jesus for saying that. Remember that? And the word rebuke that he uses, we'll see that later on, is a word that Jesus our Lord used to rebuke the demons. That's a, it's a strong word for rebuking Jesus. And the second time, they change the subject and argue about which one of them is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They turn and want it to be about themselves. This is standard narcissists, such as are so common in our culture now. And they always want to make it about themselves. And then the third time, James and John will change the subject and say, uh, can we sit on your right and on your left? 
And then the others say, wait a minute, how come you guys get to do that? And, you know, you see the pattern? It happens three times that this here. And this is an important issue because a lot of modern disciples of Christ need to examine their own lives and their own attitudes towards Christ. Because a lot of times we don't want it to be about his suffering and death. I, I was just at a conference this past weekend up in St. Louis, and one lady uh, said to me as we, we were ending, um, you know, my neighbor's a Christian. He said, if you just name it and believe it, you'll get it. And you just got to believe and you'll get whatever you ask for. And Jesus did all the suffering so you don't have to suffer. And he said, well, how do I refute that? I said, well, I'd refute it from what Jesus said, not what this person says. What did Jesus say? He said, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus said. Some other preacher was telling this guy that, no, 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 Jesus did all the suffering. We don't have to suffer. That's not in my Bible. And I can't make up stuff at this stick with what our Lord taught. So this is important for us to keep in mind the ways that we reject the teaching about the suffering and death. That's what we want to focus in terms of our prayer. Now, the first time that our, you know, the apostles misunderstand is in the very next passage, Mark 8, verse 27, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1. In that, it's a very well-known passage, at Caesarea Philippi. This is a town to the north. So they went from Bethsaida along the Jordan River up to Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi is the beginning of the Jordan. It starts off as a very large spring coming out of the base of a mountain. Especially in Christ's time, it was a big cave, an extremely deep uh, spring, and the water comes from the mountain and the snow melt and out the Jordan. And when they get up there, Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And notice how they re respond by saying, well, some say that you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. This is very important because this is the democratic approach to theology. And there are a lot of very foolish people that want to have a more democratic approach to theology. That's not the way things work. You go by what is true, not by what people feel. If you think that you can vote on doctrine, it means that you don't believe the doctrine is true. Your opinion is what matters, not the actual doctrine. And they were all wrong. You know, the faith is much more like mathematics 
You don't vote despite what some people are saying in some schools. You don't vote on whether two plus two equals four. That's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of basic math. And some people want to make an opinion. No, 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 no. We have to deal with the truth. And then he turns to the small committee of 12, the apostles. Who do you all say that I am? And it is Peter who answers, you are the Christ. Only one answers. And as especially you see in the Gospel of St. Matthew, this was a gift from God the Father. The Father made it possible for Peter to say, because otherwise he hadn't been too good on getting things right. So, uh, so he says, you are the Christ. Now, at that point in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31, we see that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So that's what he teaches. That's his response. I'm the Christ. Now you can take the next lesson. The Christ has to suffer and die before he can rise again. Now, in verse 30 per, uh, 32, at the, after this announcement, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. That's Peter's reaction. And Peter accepted that Jesus was the Christ, but not a Christ that's going to suffer and die. He wanted one that would be victorious, one that would set Israel free, one that would give all kind of good stuff. So that was his approach. And if he accepted this suffering and, and death, it would seem that Jesus is planning to fail because suffering and dying is a punishment, usually for crime. And that is what's going to happen. They're going to accuse Christ of a crime. And our Lord speaks to him and says very clearly and very strongly, turning and seeing his disciples. So Jesus is looking at the disciples as he says this to Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And that's the part of the verse that I would like that lady to read to her friend. This idea that, no, 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 suffering is no place. We're just going to all, one victory after another. You're not on the side of God. You're on the side of men. There are a lot of people that want everything to go their way and everything to be laid out for them. That's not the way it goes. It's not the way it goes. And at that point, Jesus called to him the multitude with his disciples. And he wants the crowd to hear this. This is his teaching. In verse 34, if 
any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Christ is going, as Hebrews says, Christ is the pioneer of our faith. He will go ahead of us. He's going to go first. But he expects us to follow. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. I'll take all the suffering. Is that, do you hear that here? Because I didn't read that there. It's not there. It's rather uh, that he, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what we see in the gospel of Christ. And this is uh, something that I think takes a little more reflection. I tell you what we'll do. We'll take a little break and we'll come back in a couple minutes and continue on paying attention to the way the apostles were blind and their blindness is like our blindness in many ways. So let's seek to understand how Jesus wants to heal that blindness. Stay with us, please. talking about where Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew chapter 8. And then our Lord predicts his coming suffering and death and then resurrection. And Peter rebukes Jesus for that. Well, our Lord has to rebuke Peter and says that following him and suffering with him is necessary to be a disciple. This doctrine is something that we saw that a number of people had trouble with in modern times. Back in the late 60s and into the 70s and 80s, some people were so focusing on the resurrection that they removed crucifixes from the church. And it was not so unusual in those days that not long after they removed the crucifix, they would cease talking about the Mass as the sacrifice of the Mass. They wanted to talk about it as a celebration. And they also would remove the tabernacles. That was part of a logic to remove the, cru the crucifix, to emphasize Mass as a celebration, not a sacrifice. 
de-emphasizing and sometimes outright rejecting the doctrine of transubstantiation. I knew seminarians that were told, well, it's not transubstantiation anymore, it's transsignification. That was the term that they came up with. Even though Pope St. Paul VI had written an encyclical, Mater et Magister, saying explicitly that transsignification is not the doctrine of the Catholic Church. That is inadequate. And he made it very clear that that was false. Some seminaries were still teaching. And then the tabernacle got removed. And people, it's no surprise that as the meaning and depth of the sacrifice of the Mass was watered down to a happy time and a happy celebration, then people stopped coming. Because you can have a happier celebration with better music at a rock concert. And instead of spiritual peace, you could at least smoke some marijuana or something. That's what people were doing instead. And so uh, this is something uh, that, you know, as I've mentioned a number of times, I'll never forget what one liturgist said that, um, there was more than one liturgist actually, who said that the tabernacle present in the church, in the center of the church, was a distraction. Now, I thought to myself, if the presence of Jesus is a distraction at Mass, exactly who is the main attraction then? I always thought it was Jesus, but maybe it was the choir or the priest or the altar servers. I don't know. But my theology is that it's, been, it's Christ who is the the center. So our Lord continues on in this passage with two rhetorical questions in chapter 8 verses 36 to 38 where he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? The answer to those rhetorical questions is, it profits you nothing if you don't end up with Jesus. And there's nothing by which you can redeem your life. There's nothing except for Jesus Christ. That's what we've got. And as he, he goes on to say, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is a very important point. The issue of losing your eternal life is what is at stake. And of course, if you lose eternal life, 
you end up with eternity in hell. That's the only alternative. And our Lord is saying nothing is more important. And if you are ashamed of the gospel, um, you know, you'll lose your life. The Son of Man will be ashamed of you. And especially think about it in these times when a lot of people are not willing to own up to being Christians, especially being Catholics. This is a very important thing. We believe that Jesus Christ is the final judge. The people around us who might criticize us for our Catholicism, who say that, well, we don't like your morals. I don't know, I understand that. You're not living them. And it's, it's understandable. And they have all sorts of other things that they'll say about the gospel. And they try to silence us. And if we are ashamed to speak up for Christ and his church, he'll be ashamed of us at the end of time. That's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. His judgment will determine your fate for eternity. The judgment of people in the media, and in, especially in the movies and things like that, who are in general a not well-educated and a frankly fairly superficial group, their judgment will not affect your eternal life. It may affect if they like you now, but if, even if you try to get them to like you now, they won't like you in the long run. They never liked you in the beginning. They won't like you when you agree with them. They'll just ignore you. They don't want you to bother them. And this is why we have to keep very clear in mind from this passage, we must pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Secondly, if we are ashamed of Jesus, we can lose our eternal life. We can end up in hell over shame for Jesus. And each one of us has to make a basic decision. Will I choose Christ and follow him even if it causes suffering? Or will I choose hell? It's that stark, according to Jesus. And he knows a lot more about it than the rest of us. So I'm going to go with what he teaches on this. All right, let's take a couple questions. We have a question here from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Hi, Father. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Good to have you here. Welcome. And my question is this. Um, pastors of different religions say that Jesus has um, paid our debt and there's no need for us to uh, suffer anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's a human condition that we go through trials and tribulations, mm -hmm. whether it be physical, mental, or emotional suffering. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile that contradiction? I frankly cannot say that that's true. You know, well, on one hand, it is true that because Christ is God the Son and fully human. His death on the cross 
is able to bring forgiveness for all of our sins. But at the same time, we are involved in a tremendous spiritual war. And that spiritual war entails battles. There are people that are against us. There are satanic forces that are against us. There are cultural forces that are against us. And there's some individuals who really don't like Christian morality and the teachings of Christ, and they're against us. And in addition to that, there is, as you mentioned, the suffering of the world. I mean, a lot of diseases like cancer are not because, well, uh, you're going to be a martyr Christian, you're going to get cancer. No, that doesn't work that way. And you have to be careful. A lot of people will try to put guilt. Well, you got cancer, you must have done something wrong. Not necessarily. That's, that's, that's foolish to say that if you got this or that, it's because you committed this sin or that sin. Not, sometimes, yes. Other times, no. If you drink too much alcohol, yes, it's your fault that you get a hangover. That's, that is your responsibility. But other things, you know, happen because of problems in the environment, genetics, all kinds of things. So you can't be so simplistic. And, and see, why do they do that? Because they want to blame victims and say, well, if they had more faith like I do, they wouldn't suffer. Well, it's not always that way. I've known people with tremendous faith who suffer tremendously. Uh, partly God lets them because they can take it. Mother Angelica was a good example. And other people who are pretty obnoxious sometimes don't suffer much at all. I, I'll never forget when, Pete, when Katrina hit New Orleans. People say, well, see, it's a punishment. That's a sin city. Except for this point. The French Quarter didn't get flooded. That was sin central. It was the neighborhoods that got flooded. So you, you can't be doing foolish thought like this. It's not this. And instead, we do suffer with Christ because of persecution and because of the weakness of the world and our own weakness. But we join that suffering with Christ and follow him. That's always key. Another question. Ma'am, where are you from? Uh, good afternoon, Father. From the Archdiocese of Miami, but today I'm together with the pilgrims from Orlando. Nice. And what can we do for you? Um, my question is about what are we to do mm -hmm. in the light of conflicting or confusing communications or mm -hmm. actions from the church. Mm -hmm. For example, I have seen like the restoration of tradition, like putting back the communion rails. Sure. On the other hand, we have been prohibited from Latin mass. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are we supposed to do? Yeah. Here's, here's one of the things, in, and this happens very often in the history of the church. Having the Mass in Latin and having it in the vernacular are both goods. There's nothing wrong with either one. And in the case 
here with legitimate authority saying you don't do Mass in Latin, you follow the orders. But you also can petition to have that order rescinded. You know, it's not like it's permanent. You know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember all this, but I can remember when the Latin Mass was absolutely prohibited. No exceptions were allowed. And then they allowed it in some places and then made it more generally allowed. And now it's changing again. This is, it's not a pleasant experience for those who love Mass in Latin. It isn't pleasant at all because you feel like a yo-yo. But wait, you know, things change again. But obedience to proper authority is something that the saints repeatedly describe as what we are to do. If it's proper, if it's a legitimate authority, and yet at the same time, as any of us in religious life know, even when the superior gives an order, you can make appeal. Now, you may still say no, as I've learned many times. But, you know, you, you, you trust the superior, you, and you obey, and even if you still think it's incorrect, you obey and bide your time. I remember uh, one uh, Jesuit rule, uh, our Constitution prohibits the singing, the chanting of the office in common. We're not allowed to do that. Well, one of the popes, a good man, a very pious man, forced us to do it. So Ignatius obeyed. But then as soon as uh, Pope Pius, I think it was Pius V, was elected, he said, Pace, Pace, it's okay. Go back to the way you were doing it. And so it changed back. You wait and see. But obedience is something that our Lord does reward because he himself was always obedient to the Father. Remember how our Lord said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So that's what we do. And keep in the back of our minds, the Latin language is not our savior. The English language is not our savior. No language is our savior. Jesus Christ is our savior. So I trust him. And he can be present whether the mass is in Latin or in the vernacular. And we just keep it in perspective so we don't make ourselves crazy. Uh, with the, the changing orders, you know, um, these things will change, I suspect. Just a hunch. All right, take a break, come back in a couple of minutes, and we'll continue on with your questions and comments.
Thank you. Uh, before we get back to our questions and phone calls, I want to mention something that truly disturbs me very deeply. A group of apparently homosexual men who dress up like nuns are getting an award for a community hero award from the Los Angeles Dodgers. They had rescinded their invitation because they realized this offended Catholics. They were more concerned, as apparently a decision was made yesterday, to reinstate having this. And they rescinded that for now because they'd rather offend Catholics than these, these men. And to me, this appearance is as offensive as if some racist group were putting on blackface to mock African-Americans. That's unacceptable behavior. And this, if you see pictures of them, you can look them up on the internet, and they put on white face and fake habits of nuns. And this is a disgrace and shameful behavior to our spiritual mothers. The nuns are spiritual mothers to us. In fact, one of the things that, it was, uh, that happened, nuns, were the ones who opened up one some of the first places for people dying of AIDS to get help. When others rejected them. Then the sisters set it up and took care of these people who were dying of AIDS. And they've done tremendous other service. That kind of mockery of holy women, their holy habits, and the goodness of their lives is unacceptable. I would hope that real men, including other baseball players, will refuse to enter that stadium. This is not something that is light. It's not a joke. It's something that is very serious. You show respect at a time when women are already being disrespected the woman of the year this year is a man. The top woman's college swimmer is a man. And then you mock nuns. This is not acceptable. And all of us should think about how our Lord wants to show love to the people doing this. We don't hate them. They'd like us to hate them. We don't hate them. But neither can we say that what they're doing is decent, good, beautiful, or holy. It's ugly. It makes the sisters look ugly. And this is not acceptable. Now, in some ways, we're going to be addressing this, not that specific issue, but the background issues for this tomorrow night on my EWTN live show. I'll be interviewing the president and CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, Mr. Bill Donahue. And he has a wonderful new book that addresses what's going on in society that allows 
this foolishness and evil to exist. So urge you to watch that tomorrow. Let's go to a call. We have Patricia in New York. Patricia, what can we do for you? Father, um, I'm, I'm in my 80s. I'm homebound for a while now. I'm Catholic school educated back in the 40s and 50s. I mm -hmm. grew up saying the Holy Ghost. Right. When, when did we change it and why to the Holy Spirit? And watching EWTN, which I do a lot, it was at a Mass that came from the cathedral in Washington oh, last year sometime. And, and the uh, priest, that was the only time I, I heard it, that he said Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. Uh -huh. What was the change about? Okay, the change about is this. A change from Anglo-Saxon to Latin. So the word ghost and spirit mean exactly the same thing. It comes from the, the, the German word for spirit, which is geist, and in Anglo-Saxon it becomes ghost. But in Latin, the word for spirit is spiritus. So we dis, they, they decided to use the word spirit because... On the other side, the word ghost is popularly associated with spirits that haunt places, things like that. So to avoid that Anglo-Saxon word that gets associated with hauntings and such, they just switched over to the Latin word spirit. And that's all that it is. So it's just a little clarification. We have a question here from our studio audience. Ma'am, what's your question? Um, it's about invincible ignorance. Yes. You against um, it or for it? Say it again? Are you against it or for it? I, um, I guess I'm against it. Good. All okay. right. So what can we do for you? <laughs> yeah. Um, Catholics who have born and raised Catholic schools, mm -hmm. okay, et cetera. Yeah. Um, later on in life, leave the church yep. and go church hopping um, among various mm -hmm. small Protestant denominations, mm -hmm. saying that they don't get anything out of the Catholic Mass, mm -hmm. but they like the sing songs, okay, mm -hmm. um, in these small little groups together mm -hmm. with a, I'm going to call it a preaching, or yeah. not even a homily, yeah. okay, yeah. Uh, uh, um, from someone who may not even be, doesn't even have a degree in theology. That's right. But they That's just like them, okay? Not unusual. So, right? so what do you think about, well, I, I am very concerned yeah. about how they die. Couple, okay? couples, yeah. And I don't want to know that when, if you're in that category, are you in the category of invincible ignorance? So therefore, yeah. you know, you can probably still be saved even though all you do is believe in Jesus. Yeah. Here's, here's one of the things to keep in mind that... One of the problems has been that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of the Catholic parishes have watered down Catholicism. And so they left a superficial version of Catholicism for something that at least they liked the music better. It might not be any deeper, but they, at least the music was better. And... Uh, it's, it is a superficiality that they left. And that, so the antidote has to be that we learn the depth of our Catholic faith better. And secondly, learn how to explain it. 
That's a different thing. You have to learn to recognize Catholicism and speak it so that people can hear what that truth is and bring them back. You also, the third element is you have to find out what it is that led them away so that you scratch where they itch. That's always key. Don't get, answer your question, but answer theirs. And that takes a little time, but it's worth doing. Ma'am, what Hello, can we do for my you? My name is Venus Elson from Del Mar, California. Oh, great. Good to have you here. And Thank you. Your question? My question is, my, my uh, oldest grandson, who grew up in Catholic school, mm -hmm. now signed up with uh, United Methodist uh, University, mm -hmm. Adrian University in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if, for any reason, he might be influenced with that mm -hmm. practice. Here, here's what I would do. Find out where there is, you know, and find out ahead, uh, where is there a Catholic parish or a Catholic campus ministry nearby? And to help him find that, so he goes to Catholic Mass and sees the difference. You know, right now the United Methodist Church is going through a lot of turmoil. They've been um, losing quite a few of their parishes. Uh, here in Alabama, half of the parishes have left, I mean, as parishes. That's apart from the individuals in the other parishes. Half of the uh, churches have voted to, because the, the bishops were not following their church law, their church rules, and they broke it. So they've got a lot of turmoil themselves. Um, I would simply urge, you know, find out, do some homework, and see what's nearby. And uh, if someone from your family goes with him to that college, that's a long way from California, but you know, to, to find out where there is a Catholic uh, place, uh, a Catholic parish or campus ministry and help him to get over there. Father, where are you from? Good afternoon, I am Father Juanito from the Diocese of Orlando in Florida. Yeah. Um, we were discussing earlier about the spiritual blindness of the apostles, and uh, thank God that most of them, except for one, were docile. When the Lord corrected them, they mm -hmm. just kept quiet and yep. listened and uh, took in the corrections. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, for some years in the past, I've been, I've been struggling with the so-called politically correct homilies. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, how could we, and also the laypersons, bring back that virtue of docility among our young, among our people who have started to embrace the so-called uh, alternative lifestyle mm -hmm. and open mm -hmm. their hearts and minds to Jesus? See, this is going to be a, a key part of our ministry because they, it's, it's not just that docility is at stake because, in fact, politically correct people insist on you being docile to them. If uh, this lady mentioned her uh, relative going to a campus, uh, in a lot of campuses, if you don't speak the right words and phrases, uh, and if you are not docile to them, you get in a lot of trouble and even sometimes lose scholarships and get kicked out of the school. So docility is also pushed. 
we have to be docile to what is true. Jesus, our Lord, is truth personified. And our task is to know what his truth is. What did he say? Not what the people say he said. What did he say? What did he teach? And what is at stake in that teaching? Namely, heaven or hell, as we talked about earlier. And to help people to be docile to Jesus Christ, as opposed to the ever-changing uh, fads of morals in the world. Feminism used to be a strong fad. Now, transgender trumps uh, feminism. Transgenders have more moral power than feminists do, and women. So this, we focus on what's true because it's true as Jesus taught it. That's the docility we seek. But I also have to be docile at this present moment because we're out of time. And I can't change that. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.